Let's stand together for the reading of our gospel. A reading from the gospel of St. John, chapter 10, starting with verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the, fa- and the Father are one. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. Once again, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in here today. Um, it is a special day. I am, I'm going to reserve some of my Mother's Day thoughts. You know, when we have a, sometimes we have these moments where we have a theme going on in the church calendar. We have this thing that, you know, every kind of every country and culture has kind of thought through this theme on this particular Sunday throughout the ages. And so we follow those themes here in the church calendar. And then we have these these other holidays in our culture. And so as a preacher, it creates these funny moments where you go, what what should we preach on today? (laughs) Should we preach on the the, uh, church calendar or should we preach on a Mother's Day kind of theme or something like that? Um, And I figured if I've tried in past years to kind of blend them together and I never do justice to either theme very well, (laughs) um, I will say it's not quite as bad as um, last year on Ash Wednesday, it was also Valentine's Day. So it was like, you can either go out with your... your, um, significant other and have a romantic candlelight dinner, or you can come to church and be reminded that you are going to die. (laughs) One of those two. Um, But so what what I'm going to do today, I want to share on Mother's Day here in a little bit, but today I do want to focus on this theme of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, which is our uh, theme of the church today. And uh, let me start with this. So Ashley and I are both, and if you know us very well, you know this about us. Ashley and I are both notoriously bad at forgetting to charge our cell phones, okay? Like, it's just bad. Like, we've tried, I mean, a lot of you have helped us with, like, figuring, you just need to get better chargers, or you just need to remember to do this, and, and we just forget. We just, we don't do that very well. I know, it's an, it's an odd thing about us. And you may know this, but when you forget to do that, sometimes it gets you in predicaments, Okay. So um, I, I, there have even been times where we've gone, oh gosh, I have to charge my phone in the house quickly, and so I'm going to pull the one out of the car and bring it in the house and charge it, but then you don't have one later in the car when you need it, right? And so Ashley's had more than a few times where she will go to work 45 minutes away in Murfreesboro and her phone dies and she doesn't have a cell phone. Um, well, then what she does is she'll call me from her work phone. And this has only happened a few times, so I've never programmed her work phone actually in, into my phone, like, you know, what it is. And you know what you do when you get phone calls that you don't recognize, right? You ignore them. So that's what I would do over and over again. I ignore the phone calls. I ignore, ignore the voicemails. And then about 30 minutes before I'm expecting her to be home, I'm thinking, man, I'd expect Ashley to call me by now. 
expected that she'd, and then sure enough, I find out she's called me five times and I have multiple voicemails from her. Um, but the problem with that is I was expecting Ashley to call one way that I had blinded myself to her actual voice. <laughs> I had expected it to come this one particular way and so I had covered myself away, I'd hidden myself away from her actual calling. In our text today, we have Jesus entering the temple, and it's part of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade, Solomon's Portico, Solomon's Porch, depending on how you um, translate it, but uh, which would later become a gathering place for the early Christians. But Jesus is walking into the temple. He's in Solomon's Colonnade here, and this event, the text tells us in the gospel text, happens during the Feast of Dedication. Now, we may know this uh, feast by a different name, Hanukkah, okay? We celebrate Hanukkah. So that's uh, the time that he is walking in the temple. Hanukkah is a a holiday that many of us may not know much about. Um, It may not be one that many of us celebrate. Uh, But basically, in the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so you've got the Old Testament, and you've got the time of Jesus and the New Testament, and then there's kind of a gap of few hundred years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that we don't have any scripture written about. And in that time, something significant happened. The army, it was kind of a Greek army, the army of Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem, the center of power of the Jewish people, the place where their uh, worship and their economics and their social life were centered around. He came into the temple, this Greek leader came into Jerusalem, came into the temple, trampled over the temple and desecrated it. So he began to worship false gods at Jerusalem's temple, which is like the worst thing that you could have done in the Jerusalem temple, okay? So it was believed that all of a sudden the temple was made unclean, the temple was desecrated, there was a sacrilege, the worst kind of sacrilege that was going on there. And the people of God felt like they lost God's home in that moment, okay? God's home is gone. But Hanukkah commemorates this victory of this messianic figure named Judas Maccabeus, who rose up among the Jewish people and he conquered in a sudden attack, he conquered the empire of Antiochus Epiphanes. He cleansed the temple, he rededicated it to God in 167 BC. The tyrant was overthrown, the city was liberated, and then the temple became purified again. True worship was offered to Yahweh. And in doing this, they lit candles. This is where you might see the intersection with Hanukkah, okay? They lit candles and they prayed, may this kind of thing never happen again. So that's what Hanukkah is about. It's about commemorating this moment where the temple became right again. It became God's home again. It became pure again. And after that, Judas Maccabeus and his family became kings, And Jewish kings were often called the shepherds of Israel. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, that they were called the shepherds of Israel. And the Maccabee family ruled for a hundred years, okay? So they were the kings over um, this area for a hundred years. And when their reign ended, Rome decided to install a puppet king, Herod the Great, who to become the king of the Jews over this region. But what Herod did, it was a very political move, he married a princess from the Maccabee family to show that that legacy continued. Okay, I know, it's like history class with Preston this morning, sorry. But, um, but this is a little bit of a background of what's going on. So when the text tells us this is the feast of dedication, this is all the stuff that's going on in the background. This Maccabee family, this whole thing that's happened, and they're celebrating this in this moment. 
So here in the Feast of Dedication at Hanukkah, Jesus enters the temple and he declares himself the true shepherd. So you have these kings from before, but I am the true shepherd, he says. Anyone at this time using the word shepherd to describe himself, especially during this feast, would be saying, I'm the promised one the one you had hoped for, the Messiah, the one you have longed for, the one Israel for their whole existence has hoped for and longed for to put an end to Roman oppression, to put things right in the world. So he's recalling this story story of Judas Maccabeus and the greater story of Israel's kings. And it says the Jews are gathering around him. Now, whenever you read the word Jews in the text, we need to assume it refers to the Jewish leaders. Okay, here's why that's important. Um, and we need to be really clear about this because when the Jews are listed as antagonists to Jesus here, that has sometimes been taken as support for anti-Semitism throughout church history. So sometimes they'll look at that and go, see, the Jews are the opponents of Jesus, right? But no, this is not referring to an ethnic group. This is referring to a particular group of Jewish leaders who are closed off to the way of Jesus. Does that make sense? So we're talking about something different here. Um, We should be reminded that Jesus himself, our savior and our redeemer is Jewish. And this is referring to those elite nationalist groups who had closed themselves off to Jesus. And they're frustrated. These Jewish leaders are frustrated that he's not telling them plainly if he is the Messiah. He's giving them pictures, he's giving them parables, he's teaching, but he's not telling them clearly if he's the Messiah or not. Give us a yes or no is what they're trying to say. Are you claiming to be the Messiah, the promised one or not? And instead he says this, the works that I do in my father's name testify to me, but you don't believe because you don't belong to my sheep. And then he talks about his sheep. He has previously in this chapter chapter called himself the good shepherd. Shepherd is not only in reference to all the kings that have gone before, but there's so much shepherd imagery in the Old Testament. We read Psalm 23, where God is described as our shepherd who guides us and leads us. Isaiah also said, he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. And then the prophet Ezekiel had words of condemnation for the leaders of Israel. He called them the shepherds, because they did, but they didn't feed the sheep, so he called them out. So Jesus had called himself the good shepherd, and in a previous, in previous part of this passage, there was a man who was born blind, and he was healed, and the Pharisees weren't treating him very kindly. They were kind of treating him as a case study and poking and prodding him and interrogating him, and Jesus comes in and reminds them, you're supposed to be a shepherd of this guy. You're supposed to lead him compassionately. And Jesus himself is the one who embodies true shepherding, what the good shepherd really means. So when you think about Jesus as shepherd, maybe you've like seen a lot of these like paintings over the years or images. I know my grandma always had a picture on her wall, an image of Jesus as a shepherd with a sheep, you know, kind of on his shoulders. Sometimes, and those are wonderful, but sometimes we think of a shepherd as like just meek and mild, not stirring the boat, just nice and kind of walking through. But this was so revolutionary that by the end of this story, because Jesus called himself the true shepherd, everybody wanted to stone him. Like this was an overthrowing revolutionary kind of image that's going on here. 
But the Jewish leaders and many others can't hear his voice. They're holding on to something else. They're committed to a different way of viewing the world. They can't hear. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. There is a sense that there are those who are his sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And this passage freaks us out a little bit because if there are some sheep who are his sheep, then that means that there must be others who are not. And that's really hard for us to get our mind around. What does that mean? What does that look like? It's important first that we understand that Jesus' language here is really personal and intimate. He says he knows his sheep. Our God is not an impersonal being in the sky who kind of intervenes with us just like we're pawns on a chessboard. That's not our God. Our God wants to know us, to be in relationship with us. We are each worth knowing, is what Jesus says. And he calls us to know him. I'm not sure if you've ever had a pastor or a boss at your company who they want to know a lot about you and your life and everything you're doing, but they're very unapproachable, right? They don't ever want you to know anything about them. You know, they're kind of distant. Jesus wants for us not only to be known by him, but to know him, to know who he is. And then, of course, there's leadership sometimes in our world that is the opposite. Someone who wants you to know all about them, (laughs) but they don't want to know anything about you. That's not Jesus either. He wants to know who we are. Jesus knows you and wants to be known by you. Jesus gives us a life of knowing God and being known. So that means that If you're somebody that has felt at any point in your life like you're invisible, like you're lost, like you're without without any identity, you can know that he knows every hair on your head, every pain, every hurt, every struggle, every fear. Maybe you're here today and you're like, hey, I've got this, um, this pain that's just gnawing at me and continuing, and it feels like I don't ever want to even talk about it with anybody because it's like nobody will care. He knows that. He feels that. He's with you in that. He hurts with you in that. Now, I have to say this, and this is a little bit more technical, but um, sometimes people use this passage to um, support a particular doctrine that would say, well, see, from the beginning of time, there are people who are born who are supposed to be God's sheep, and then there are people who are born who are supposed to not be God's sheep, who are supposed to be outsiders, And they're just always going to be those people, God predestined before the beginning of time. You have no choice in the matter. There's what would be called vessels of wrath and vessels of beauty, people who are beautiful and they're close to God or people who are created just for his wrath. And so people will use this passage to say that. There's some people that will just never hear the voice of God. They'll just always be outside. But I don't think that this passage is really here to refer that. I I believe in the concept that God chooses people and that God has chosen people before the beginning of the world. But I believe that anytime we're chosen by God, anytime we're elected by God, we're called into his family, the purpose of that is that so we can share the invitation with others, so that we can go into the world and invite others into the sheepfold, okay? Um, God elects, I believe he predestines. Those are biblical words. But when God elects someone, the trajectory of scripture tells us that we are to share that invitation, to call more sheep to hear his voice. Jesus says here that the works that he does in his father's name testify to the fact that he is the Messiah. 
And yet the Jewish leaders, for some reason, still don't get it. And the reason why is the Jewish leaders were so twisted away from God's original calling to his people. If you remember the story of the Old Testament, when Yahweh calls Abraham, when he calls the children of Israel for the first time, he calls Abraham to be a blessing to all nations that he would be part of God's chosen people, but he would be a blessing to everybody, the outsiders, the foreigners, those who are far away. But these Jewish leaders are so far away from remembering that call. They have turned to a form of nationalistic pride, a way of excluding people who don't measure up, people who are sinful, people who are far away, and they're unable to see the Messiah when he's standing right in front of them. They are like sheep who have attuned their voice to different shepherds, different ways of thinking. And in fact, this is how the Maccabees rose to power, through violence. They were like warlords. They were shepherds, yes, but they were dominating shepherds. Jesus takes the shepherd imagery and he flips it on his head, reminding them of who they were supposed to be from the beginning. So the Jewish leaders are here, and the reason why they're so baffled by Jesus is they're expecting Jesus to rise up with military strength, just like the Maccabees did. That if they can come with swords, and then we can overthrow Rome, and we can do this once again, we can do this once and for all and conquer our enemies. And yet Jesus is a guy who eats with sinners, who calls out the temple structures, who refuses to fight back to be the Messiah. It's like he's calling, but they've blocked out his number, right? They can't see who he is. They, they are so twisted in their perspective of who the Messiah is supposed to be. And here's what's so cool about this. Jesus doesn't try to prove it to them. He lets his actions speak for themselves. I think that says something profound to us about faith. I don't know about you, but I grew up in Christian traditions where I felt the constant need to make sure that I could defend my faith that I had an answer to everything that came against my faith, any question that was raised. I was armed with scripture passages and historical accounts, and all of those are good. It's, it's good to have all of those things. But the best thing that we can do as Christians to prove Jesus is just to tell our story and to live it. Like defending it and fighting and doing all, I mean, that's only good up to a point. In fact, the closest we can get with apologetics and with defending the faith or whatever is to show people that it could make sense to believe in this. That's the closest we can get. To show people that there is a sense, there is a world where this connects and where it could work. But there is a point where we have to just make a choice of faith, where we can't just have it all completely figured, it out, figured out, where we have to just simply attune ourselves to the voice of God. There's an internal call that's required. There's an awakening, awakening of faith that is still necessary. And some people aren't ready to take that step. I meet a lot of people in my life and I tell them that I'm a pastor and I can tell their guard goes up immediately, right? Um, I can't really get around that. I tried for a while to kind of go, people would say, what do you do for a living? And it's kind of like, well, I, I um, talk to people and counsel people and that kind of thing. But you just kind of have to say it at some point. And people's guard goes up and, and I can tell people aren't ready to talk about faith. So my job is just keep living my life and loving them and pursuing a life of character and blessing. Can't force that. The Jewish leaders were so blinded by their cultural narratives and they just weren't ready 
and we're ready. So Jesus doesn't try to force that. He just says, this is what I'm doing. My works testify to who I am. Jesus doesn't sit down and create a chart to try to explain to them, here's how I'm the Messiah. This plus this equals this. He says, I'm doing it. I'm living it. I'm calling. And those who are here, hear my voice. Jesus is talking here about the church when he talks about his sheep. God's people are the ones who experience, who walk around with him in everyday life. And Jesus says, those who are his sheep will live a life that lasts, that lasts into God's new, God's new world. The people who are connected with Jesus and the Father, that is greater than any other reality. And he says, no one can snatch them out of God's hand. The second characteristic of a good shepherd is, first one is that he knows the sheep and he wants to be known by the sheep. The second characteristic is that he lays down his life for the sheep. This is the dominant idea in John 10, the whole way through about the good shepherd. We don't see it explicitly mentioned in our passage, but it's mentioned four times earlier that Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The Pharisees saw themselves as shepherds of Israel. They were leaders and guides of Israel. But their hope was that if we could just get the sheep to act right, if we could get them in line, if they could get them to follow the rules, then that's how life is going to order itself rightly. But the Pharisees wouldn't risk themselves for the sheep. They, wouldn't, they would look from a distance with contempt, but they wouldn't actually get their hands dirty for the sheep. Of course, the wolves will get, the, will get sheep because the shepherds are not willing to lay down their lives to protect them. And they're looking, these Jewish leaders are looking for a different kind of shepherd. They're looking for a Maccabean type of warlord. And Jesus is not that. Their kingdoms are built on justice, which is good, but not love. And love has always been at the center of God's story. The way of the Pharisees is built on fear and violence. We tend to think that you can't have both of those things in our culture. So we tend to think you're either afraid or you're you're overzealous and violent. So we think about those as kind of polarities. You're either scared or you're overly confident. But I think we all know on a deeper level that the most violent people are violent because they're the most fearful. They're afraid of something. And they believe that the only way to respond to that fear is with violence. So they look to and turn to things which they think will ease their fears. So if we're afraid about the state of our culture, we find certain groups to blame that on, don't we? If we can point a finger at them, then that creates a scapegoat. We're afraid that we might not get that promotion at work, so we put down our coworker. We're afraid of how our child might make us look in public, so we're a hyper-disciplinarian sometimes, guilty. We are, um, and that gets to the point where we're unconcerned about our child's needs and we're only thinking about their behavior. This is not the way of Jesus. And that's why leaders can't, why the leaders here can't hear his voice. Why we often can't hear his voice. But Jesus cares for the sheep to the point of laying down his life for them. Jesus is not the one who runs away when times get rough. He's not just a hired hand shepherd who's just getting paid for this and that's why he's doing it. No, he is with us for the long haul. N.T. Wright says this, Jesus goes further, 
Kingdoms based on anything less than self-giving love and brigandish distortions of the real thing. Are brigandish distortions of the real thing. Jesus goes further. Kingdoms based on anything less than self-giving love are brigandish distortions of the real thing. The sheep who hear his voice have a significant promise attached to them. And this is what we see in the book of Revelation that we read earlier. Even the great enemy of death will not be the end of them. And the reason why Jesus can be so confident is this incredible union that he has with the Father. The union between Jesus and the Father is the core of the Christian hope. Jesus makes it clear to us again, the Father and the Son are one. And then in the Revelation text, we see this really profound image that's amazing, that not only is Jesus the shepherd, the leader, but he is also the lamb. What is that about? This lamb who is the sacrificial lamb, who has given his life for the sheep, is now the one who leads them. And in the midst of persecution, in the midst of false shepherds, in the midst of every possible evil that the church would ever face, because of the lamb who is the shepherd, there is hope that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what are our questions today? Well, first question is, are we listening? Are we in a posture of listening for the voice of the good shepherd? The problem is not that God is not speaking to us. The question is, are we listening? Are we attuned to his voice? Now, I think on the surface, this is a literal question. <laughs> Do we have space and time carved out in our lives for listening, where we can be still and quiet, where we don't just have constant noise surrounding us everywhere we go? In our world, we're crowded by noise. So we have cable news and we have podcasts and we have Netflix and we have whatever our favorite hobby or affinity might be. And it's just constantly coming at us. Do we have space to listen and to pray and to immerse ourselves in the scripture? But more generally, like what are our expectations of God? Do we have these narratives that we believe about who God is and how God might come and how God might speak that hold us back? Sometimes I think Christians, like we think we're listening for God's voice, but we're really just listening for God to um, tell us that we're gonna be prosperous, <laughs> that we're gonna be successful. So we merge those things together and we go, like anytime God might be saying, hey, stuff's gonna go great for you. You're gonna get that job and you're gonna make lots of money. We think, thanks God, that's what I wanna hear from you. <laughs> but other times we don't. Or dream fulfillment. Do we think that listening to his voice just means all our dreams are gonna be fulfilled? Gosh, he's got something so much better and deeper than all of those false things that we believe. I've told you this story before, but when I was about 24, I was an associate pastor preaching at my church. And I was also in seminary and I got really excited about what I was learning in seminary and some of the new things I was learning at seminary. And I wanted to preach about all that stuff. So one of the things I was learning about was the Christian idea of social justice, okay? Basically the idea that it's not just individuals that are broken and sinful, but it's also the structures and the systems of our world that are broken and sinful, okay? And I didn't think about this as being like a political term, honestly. <laughs> I thought about this as like a Christian or theological term. And I thought about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I thought about Mother Teresa. And, and I began to, to preach on this idea and introduce this idea of social justice to our congregation. In 2008 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I was literally introducing the concept of social justice to most of the people in our congregation. 
And so, um, and yet that very Sunday that I introduced that term, I had found out that there was a national conservative talk radio host who had said the following statement that week. If your church preaches social justice, leave your church immediately. <laughs> okay. Now, there was a lot of term defining there. There was a lot that needed to happen. There was a lot of misunderstanding, all of these kind of things. But I realized in that moment that if I got an hour and a half on Sunday to help people be formed by the gospel, but they were listening to something else three hours a day, five days a week, there was no way we were going to be able to compete with that, <laughs> right? That what we do habitually is going to form us. Now, hear me say this. That was one particular instance where I'm talking about conservative talk radio. That is totally true on the other side of the political perspective, and it's totally true on lots of other things in life, okay? So don't, I'm not picking on uh, conservative media here. But whatever we do habitually over and over again, that begins to form how we see the world and how we shape the world, doesn't it? I mean, would you agree with that? Okay, well, I guess you wouldn't tell me if you didn't disagree or you disagreed with it this morning. But, but I guarantee you, if our favorite cable news channel is our primary source of formation, we will begin to take on the narratives of that cable news channel. They will begin to form us, okay? Right, left, conservative, liberal, whatever it is. And I guarantee you, they will begin to um, look more like, the narratives that we embrace will begin to look more like the dominating revolutionaries that Jesus was calling out than about the good shepherd. I have noticed that when people are formed by these counterfeit narratives, that they use a lot of conquering language, owning language, right? They're not fueled by compassion. Sometimes our version of the gospel looks a lot more like the American dream, just like the Jewish leader's gospel looked a lot more like the Maccabean dream. And in case you're sitting here going, well, I don't pay attention to politics, so this, is, this would be a great sermon for my Uncle Frank, but that's not my problem, right? There are lots of false narratives that aren't just political in our world. We can easily get sucked into narratives of success at our job that are just about, I gotta get ahead no matter what. No matter what ethics I have to set aside. Another thing that you'll recognize about false narratives is they're always stirring up fear, guilt, and shame. So this is one of the reasons we, ident we can identify if we are following after false ways of viewing the world, uh, these dominating narratives, is that they're always driven by fear, guilt, and shame. So you'll always be told that either you need to be afraid of the outsiders or that you are an outsider and you're not good enough. Think about that. If you're here today and you're hearing, gosh, the world would just be better if we just got rid of those people, the other political party or the people from other countries or, or the people of other perspectives or whatever that is, that's a narrative that's driven by fear, right? On the other end, you may have felt in your life that you're the one that has been excluded and been left out. That's not healthy either. That's guilt and shame. There's something wrong with me. I am broken for who I am. It's either the narrative of everyone else has it all together and you'd wrong. And usually it's a mix of both. The last thing I want to say about this, and I think this is really beautiful, is um, Jewish theologian Martin Buber identified three pairs of words. Um, three pairs of words. Stay with me. I, it, them, us, and I, you, and I'll explain all of these here. These are kind of these, these hyphenated words, these three pairs of words, and they represent three different ways of viewing other people in our lives. 
All three of these pairs are basic to human relationships. So think about this first one, I, it. So if I see somebody else as an it, (laughs) I, it, right? That actually destroys human relationships. When I see someone else as an it, as an object, as a thing, it depersonalizes them. The other is a thing to be experienced or to be used. They exist for me to do with as I like. I don't listen to an it. I don't have compassion for an it, do I? This depersonalizes. I amuse myself with an it as novelty, as an experience, but I don't have a conversation, a real conversation with an it. Sometimes we view the world through I, it, and we view others through I, it. The other one is us, them. This divides the world into two. There's children of light and there's children of darkness. This is an easy and convenient way of us viewing the world because it allows us to look at whatever's wrong with the world and say it's what's wrong with them. Complexities vanish. Everything is neat and tidy. Us, them is the language of demagogues, okay? It's the language that um, attracts great crowds because it says I'm on the right team and they're all on the wrong team. And then the last one is I, you. This is the language of an accurately lived life, a life lived in personal relationship. This theologian says, I, you can be spoken only with one's whole being. The concentration into a whole being can never be accomplished by me and can never be accomplished without me. I require a you to become. There is no humanity without relationship. I need you. We're in relationship with one another. And I want to suggest that our world is often driven by I, it, and us, them. That we either see people as objects who aren't really that important or don't matter, or we see people as on the other team or the other side. But I want you to hear something different today. That our story is that Jesus knows you, who you are. And he calls us to know others fully. I want you to hear that hope today, that the false messianic narratives are false because they don't care about you. <laughs> they want to categorize you and dominate you. They want to treat you as consumers as, and as voters. But you're more than that. Jesus knows you. And at our heart, I think we know this. I think we know that we're more than what the false narratives treat us as. We know that we're sheep with a good shepherd and he's calling us. Are we open to God shaking up our categories? I think is the question. We have a great hope. God is at work. God is moving. God is working and he's working with people on the margins, people who were never expected to be sheep of the Messiah. He's gone to them. And the good news is that our God is the good shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this reality today, and and my hope is that we would um, live into this. It's easy for us to accept um, false stories about who we are and about where the world is. And yet, Lord, you lead us into a different reality. Thank you that you are the God, the good shepherd who knows us and who wants to be known by us. And Lord, thank you that you are the good shepherd who lays down your life for the sheep. May we be consistently reminded and formed by this reality. In Jesus' name, amen.